people this afternoon, I think it would be a fantastic opportunity to, to celebrate with them and have your vision kindled for, man, this is what it looks like for churches to multiply. All right, let's, let's look at, uh, at Mark chapter 8. And what I'm doing is sort of picking up where Kyle left off last week, this very significant turning point in Mark's gospel where Jesus turns to the disciples and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter announces, you're the Christ. So very, very important moment, uh, strategic, like almost divides Mark's gospel right in half. It's very strategic. And now here is the follow-up to that. And it's not what you expect. It's kind of surprising. So let's stand uh, in honor of God's word as we see the reaction to this confession. I'm going to begin in verse 31. And he, that is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, these are sobering words. And I pray that we would all take stock uh, and, and hear this correction personally that each of us would set our minds on the things of God, that we would avoid uh, this way of thinking that is uh, controlled by the enemy, this very worldly way of doing life, indeed, of even doing religion. So, Lord, would you show us clearly, speak to us plainly about your kingdom and about the Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Yeah, so uh, Jesus calls out Peter, get behind me, Satan. How would you like to be on the receiving end of that rebuke? I do not want to hear those words. Uh, nobody wants to hear those words. So what exactly is going on here? I'm going to back up and just initially talk about what Kyle was reviewing last week. You are the Christ, Peter's confession. And then how Jesus is correcting Peter. Get behind me, Satan. And then what does it mean to have our minds set on the things of God, right? So um, backing up to Peter's original confession, you're the Christ. Uh, Matthew says and, and adds to that, the son of the living God. Um, after Peter's confession of the Christ, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. There's, there's, a, there's an identity there, Christ, son of man. There's these titles that, that, that overlap. So we need to hear... As, as, as Kyle reminded us last week, we need to hear this inescapable question personally. Who do you say that I am? You know, Jesus poses that question to each one of us. And there's lots of options, you know, lots of different views you know, that are out there. And I'm sure you've heard lots of different responses, you know, about what people think about Jesus. He's a good teacher. He's a moral example. You know, this religious figurehead. And, and that's kind of what the disciples were saying in response to Jesus initially. Oh, well, some people say he, 
you're John the Baptist, other people say, you know, Elijah or one of the prophets, etc. So there's different options, right? Then Peter speaks on behalf of the disciples, and he gets the right answer. You're the Christ, and you know, good job, Peter, well done. But you can have the right answer. Still have the wrong idea. Like there's the, the Christ according to the world, and then there's the Christ according to Jesus. I mean, Peter gets the right answer, but he's obviously confused because he doesn't have the right idea about who the, the Christ is. The evidence, you know, is when Jesus has to explain to them uh, what we have to do and what he has to do in fulfillment of his messianic role. Jesus is talking about his suffering, and then what does Peter do? This is the proof that Peter has the wrong paradigm for what the Christ is after Jesus explains that he's got to suffer and die and, be, and, and then rise again. What does Peter do? Look at verse 32. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Get this in your head. Jesus is explaining what he's got to do. And then Peter says, um, Jesus, can I have a word? Whenever somebody says that to you, what, what are the next, what's the next sentence? Is it a good sentence or not so good? Can I have a word? You can see Peter with his arm around Jesus' shoulder, pulling him aside. Can we talk? I don't think you quite get your own kingdom. I think I know a little bit more about how to be the Christ than you do. Let me set you straight. I just, I don't even have a paradigm for Peter at this point. I don't understand how can he imagine to be setting Jesus straight about his own kingdom, but that's what he's doing. That's what he's trying to do. He's got the right answer, but the wrong paradigm, the, the wrong model, and, and, and he's not the only one who makes this mistake. Because when you get to the end of Mark's gospel, chapter 15, right, Jesus is arrested. He's standing before the high priest. He's standing before the high priest, and the high priest says, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus' response is very straightforward, very simple. He says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So Peter gets the right answer, wrong paradigm. The high priest are you the Christ? We're waiting for the Christ. We're expecting the Christ, the Messiah. He's our hope. He's going to set, you know, Israel straight and, and set Rome, you know, put Rome in its place and so on. And so if the high priest had the right paradigm for the Christ, and if Jesus responds to his question, are you the Christ, by simply saying, I am, and affirming, yes, you're right, I am the Christ, what should the high priest have done at that moment? If the high priest had the right paradigm, he would have gotten down from his high place and instead asked Jesus to come and stand on the dies and bow before Jesus and worship his rightful king in Christ. And instead, what does the high priest do? He rejects the Christ and betrays him and hands him over to Rome 
to be crucified. This is the most prominent, highest-ranking religious official in Israel, fully anticipating, fully expecting, waiting for the Christ to come and deliver and save his nation. And the Christ is standing before him, and he doesn't recognize him. Rejects him. Considers him an enemy of the state, not the Savior. So whether you're kind of this high-profile Highly religious, white collar, highly educated, whatever, you know, you can get the Christ wrong. You can be a blue collar, callous handed, you know, sunburned, fisherman, uneducated, you know, guy like Peter and get the Christ wrong. It doesn't matter. We're all susceptible to this. The real question is how's our paradigm of the Christ? Is it accurate? Do we know who the Christ is? Uh, and this is really why we need to pay attention to Jesus because we can have the Christ according to the world. That's not good. That's not healthy. Or you can have the Christ according to Christ. The Christ according to Jesus. We, we need to, you know, you know all right, let me, let me kind of ease off a little bit on Peter and the high priest. We actually need to cut them some slack. They were not off base in their expectations. They just weren't, they didn't have the whole picture. What they were going off of were all these prophecies from the Old Testament promising this powerful warrior king, right? Like you read about in Jeremiah 23, where the prophet says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land and in his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. So, you know, there's this grand Dios prophecy about the rulership and the kingdom of the Christ, and he's going to rout Israel's enemies, and he's going to establish justice and you know, all this glorious stuff that everybody's hoping in. But that's not the whole picture. Peter and the high priest weren't wrong to expect a kingdom. They weren't wrong to expect righteousness and justice. But their vision was narrow. They didn't see the big picture. What is the big picture according to Jesus? What does Jesus mean by the Christ? He obviously has something different in mind than what Peter or the high priest or the people who were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Something different than what they expected, right? So how would Jesus answer his own question? Like going back to last week, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Who does Jesus say that he is? How would he answer his own question? Well, it's right in front of us. And he speaks to us just as plainly as he does to the disciples in verses 31 and 32. He began to teach them, teach us, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, plainly. One scholar put it this way for Peter, you know, the indication that the son of man will die is unthinkable. For Jesus, it is inevitable, inevitable. And so the problem is that the 
disciples, Peter being their, their spokesperson, and the people were all assuming that they knew all there was to know about the Christ. We know what to expect. We've got it figured out. And they are, you know, having a problem because they're not open to what Jesus is describing about the Christ. What they're failing to recognize is that the Christ isn't just a king. He is a king. He's the anointed king. That's what the Messiah means. But the anointing fell not only on kings, but also on prophets. And the anointing also fell on priests. And so as Jesus is describing his role as the Christ, he's not only the anointed king, he's the anointed prophet. And so when the anointed prophet, the Christ, speaks, what should you do? Listen. We don't rebuke him. (laughs) We don't pull the anointed prophet aside and say, you know what, I think I know better. I think I've got the kingdom figured out a little bit better than you do. And let me set you straight, Jesus. Prophet. That's not how it works. We need to listen to how he's describing and giving us more information about what the Christ will do. It's not, it wasn't exactly new information. The Old Testament did talk about a suffering servant who would be unrecognized by the world, rejected by the world, and by his stripes, we would be healed. And we need to hear his word, and we need to be taught by that word and instructed by that word. And he's also the anointed priest who would provide God's reconciling work, a sacrificial work to forgive our sins, to unite us to God. And that's what he's pointing to in his death and in his resurrection. That's the Christ according to Jesus, according to the Christ. Sadly, you know, from Peter to the high priest and everybody in between, you know, all they're looking for is the one who's going to make their wildest dreams come true. They're looking for the king that's going to put Israel on top. It's going to make everything great again. So we don't want to reduce the Christ down to your like, favorite part. The Christ is bigger than that. He's, he's larger than that. And, he, and we bow to him instead of him bowing to us. And, you know, this is why Jesus is so strong against Peter. Like, get behind me, Satan, right? Good grief. Where did that rebuke come from? Well, notice, Jesus isn't just being hard on Peter. He's He's, he's taking the entire group of disciples to task, um, you know, basically when you're looking at this passage in verse 33, right, um, where he says, the turning and seeing his disciples, right, he's looking at the other 11 uh, who are sort of standing there like looking on, oh, Peter's, you know, going to set Jesus straight now, and they're all complicit in this, nodding their head in agreement with Peter, and so Jesus knows that he's got to correct all of them. And so in that, in, in that sense, he's, he is addressing all of them and rebuking all of them. Get behind me with this sort of satanic idea. Um, and nobody likes to be corrected publicly or, you know, rebuked publicly. I don't know. When was the last time you were rebuked? When was the last time somebody corrected you and told you you were wrong? How did it feel? Maybe you, maybe you felt like I did on Friday, laying back, reclining in my dental chair, the dentist's chair with the new dental hygienist, you know, with her fingers all in my mouth and the floss and the thing and the thing and the sucky thing and the squirty thing and just all, all this happening in my mouth. I, I'm not kidding. In the span of about 40 minutes, on three separate occasions, this... I, I, it's, <laughs> This dental hygienist gave me the business about flossing. How many of you had, have had the business read to you about flossing? 
Like, all right, so she says, hey, you, you, you're, you're a pretty good brusher, but we need to talk about flossing. I'm like, okay, I got it. No, no, we really need to have a conversation about flossing. Okay, I heard. And just in case you missed it, you need to start flossing more. I'm like, okay. End of the visit, I got my bag. You still get these bags when you go to the dentist? Normally, what's in here? Toothbrush and a thing of floss. Guess what I got? First time, instead of a toothbrush, I got the flossing stick. <laughs> Subtle, right? You need one of these daily. Uh, and uh, okay. And, I, and it's good. I mean, she's, she's right. I need to floss more. I got a little flossing pick and every now and then I'll go at it. But I need to floss more. It's good for my teeth. It's good for your teeth. You should floss more. So, but what if, what if, as a guest this morning, what if I had brought the, this hygienist forward up on this platform, and what if she were kind of going after me right up here, telling me what a terrible flosser I am in front of all of you? How would, how would I feel? How would you feel being corrected publicly like that? Kind of like want to just shrink and, and melt away. It feels bad. We don't want to be corrected. We don't want to be told we're wrong. Why? Because what each one of us desperately wants more than life itself, people are willing to die for this. We want to be right. We want to be right. The biblical word for that is righteous. Like, don't, don't get confused with, you know, spiritual sounding words. It's, it's pretty, pretty universal. Everybody wants to be right. Everybody wants to be righteous. That's why we get defensive. That's why we argue. That's why we take people to task. Nobody likes being rebuked. Nobody likes being corrected because it just, it goes after something really core in us something that God put in you and in me. It's the desire to be right. How can we be right? By looking to the one who makes us righteous. So Jesus turns, looks at Peter and the rest of the disciples, and he says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. And I just think it's pretty remarkable that Jesus uses this language. And I know it sounds extreme to us, but I need you to think about it in, in its most basic terms. Like anything that's opposed to the kingdom of God comes from where? Comes from the kingdom of darkness. Paul refers to the prince of the power of the air, like the one who controls the kingdom of darkness. That's Satan, right? So anything that's opposed to the kingdom of God is anti-Christian. It's anti-Christ comes from the enemy. It is satanic in its philosophy. That sounds extreme, but it's not. It doesn't have to come from the lips of some, you know, Satanist to be satanic. Any advice, any counsel that comes from a professor, a politician, a parent, a pastor that is contrary to the kingdom of God is satanic. It comes from the pit. It smells like smoke. It's not from the kingdom of God, and Jesus is addressing that. So we need to beware, right? Um, 
Let's take this to heart, okay? We're here to just speak sense to one another and hear God, hear Jesus even speaking plainly to us. We need to beware. Anytime when Jesus is conforming to our agendas, when Jesus is simply there to bless our dreams and aspirations, when that's his role, that is satanic stuff. He doesn't ask anything of you. He doesn't change you. He's simply on call to help you and me accomplish our dreams. That's not the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of this world. It smells like smoke. It's from the pit. It's lifeless religion. It's not biblical Christianity. It's not the gospel that Jesus preached. It's Satan speaking. It's not Jesus. It's diabolical. It's not doxological. So we need to beware of this. When Jesus conforms to all of our likes and is against all of our dislikes, when we're not being changed, he's changing. And so Christ, you know, just to make it clear, Christ did not come to make us rich or successful or safe or loved by all. He didn't come to make us respectable in the world's eyes. He didn't come to make us strong and beautiful in the world's eyes. He didn't come to our lives can be easy and pain-free and problem-free. He didn't come to do any of that. I want to be clear here. It's not wrong. You're not wrong. If you're beautiful, if you're rich, if you've got a great job and people love you, those are good gifts. Thank the giver of all good gifts. What I'm saying is that it's wrong to think, to live, to assume that those things, those created things, are God's goal for you. That's the kingdom of this world. That's not the kingdom of God. So once they become the measure for a disciple's success, then that's when they become satanic. Like the scary thing is that in lots of Christian circles, you'll find those things are the goal. They're the measure of blessing. They can be blessings, but they're not the consummate blessing. Like this is why Paul had to remind the Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, look, there are these false apostles going around. They're spreading false teaching. They're deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Like he's fine with putting out good-looking decoys. He's not, he doesn't have to dangle porn in front of you to get you off into the weeds. He doesn't have to dangle materialism in front of you to get you off into the weeds. He can do it through good, ordinary things that we forget to give thanks for. We forget to pursue the giver of the gifts instead of the gifts themselves. So I like how N.T. Wright put it. Did we suppose that the kingdom of God would mean merely a few minor adjustments in our ordinary life? Like, what did Jesus come to do? In calling us into his kingdom, Jesus came to make us his followers. That's the goal. 
becoming his followers, he came to save us from our sins and to transform our sinful lives into holy lives. That's why he came. That's the work of the Christ in our lives. He came to enlist us to be a part of his plan to transform the world from all that sin has affected. And he came to change us and to change the world through us. That's why he came. And those other things are kind of glommed on. And so we have to know Satan's place. This is why Jesus would say, get behind me, Satan, because there's this distraction, right? Peter saying, no, 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 you can get to your goal without suffering. You can get to your goal without cost. And that's what the world tells us. Jesus is saying, no, 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 I can't be tempted by that. I need Satan in his proper place behind me. And we need Satan in, its, in his proper place, which is behind us. We will um, be guided by whatever's in front of us. That's just how life works. Whatever is in front of you, you're following that by default. And the only way that I know for sure that I can keep Satan from being in front of me and keep him behind me, and the only way I can know to, to guide and counsel us as a church to keep Satan from being in front of us and keep him behind us is to have something else in front of us that we're determined to follow, and that, that has got to be Jesus. And that can only happen intentionally and deliberately as we wake up every single morning, every day, and we put on our disciple hat, and we say, I'm going to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and whatever in his good and perfect, kind, gracious wisdom he determines to provide for me, then that will be added to me today. I'm going to seek him. I'm going to seek his kingdom. That's going to be first on my list. The way to keep Satan behind us is to keep Jesus in front of us. And that's how we're going to set our minds on the things of God, right? That's, how, that's why Jesus is telling Peter, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. When we love the kingdom of the world, that's when our mind is not set on things above. When we love the kingdom of God, then, then we're clicking. Then we're doing what Paul you know, is describing about uh, setting our minds on things above and you know, our hearts on things above in Colossians. So, Anyway, in the, in the simplest sense, Mark has divided his gospel. Chapters 1 through 8 are about, you know, the Christ, the king, and you see demons are retreating from him, and uh, the creation is bowing before him, and the crowds are celebrating him, and evil is retreating, uh, all these beautiful things that are happening. And then you get to chapters 9 through 16, and you see his salvation coming. It's like, you know, the Christ and then Jesus, the one who saves us from our sins. And, and the second half of the gospel ends with the cross and the resurrection and Jesus saving us. People don't have a paradigm for a Christ who's going to suffer. A Christ who's going to be crucified. A Christ who's going to die that way for our sins. But we've got to have that paradigm. How can this king, how can this king be a king if demons aren't going to retreat from him but instead are going to attack him? How can he be a king if the storms aren't going to obey him but they're going to come against him? How can he be king if the enemies aren't going to you know, run, instead they're going to attack? How can the king have crowds and creation turning on him? Well, this crucified man is the Christ. And in Mark 15, it was actually a Roman centurion who recognized exactly who he was, 
even though all of you know, Israel had rejected him, here's the centurion saying, truly, this man was the son of God. And so just as chapter 8 and 9, this really central pivot point in the gospel of, the, of Jesus explaining who the Christ is and what he would do, it's a turning point for Mark, it's a turning point for each of us. Because central in my life and central in your life is how you answer this inescapable question. Who do you say that I am? And it's actually not enough to get the answer right. You've got to know who the Christ is. And we're going to keep growing in this and we're going to you know, spend the rest of our lives unpacking exactly who is Jesus until one day we'll stand before him and we'll see him as he is. He really is worthy of all power and glory and blessing? The answer to that question, is he, is yes. And we will say that emphatically for an eternity. And right now it sort of fits and starts, but we want to grow in this conviction. We want to say no to the kingdom of the world and yes to the kingdom of Christ so that we can see that Jesus died for our sins. He was a penalty for a substitute for our sins. He defeated death on behalf of the dead. And if your hope is in that, then you recognize the Christ for who he is. Not perfectly, but you're growing. Not perfectly, but I'm growing. But we have to say yes to that. I have to have somebody who will bear my sins. And then furthermore, it's not my kingdom come, but your kingdom come. Your will be done. This is the turning point for each one of us so that we can leave the kingdom of self behind and get into the kingdom of God. Um, this is, you know, the way to, to, to be made new is to turn from what's old. And this is where I want to wrap up. The Bible calls this repentance. It's about setting your mind on the things of God, not on the things of man. It is to turn from, you know, my own will, my dreams, my aspirations, my goals to Jesus's dreams, goals, his agenda. And that's what repentance looks like. And faith is the other side of that coin, and it chooses Jesus. Jesus is going to be in front of me. He's the one I'm going to follow. It's his will that's going to be done, not mine. And so, you know, faith chooses the one who offers himself in exchange for ourselves. He's going to be my king. So if you're on board with this and you're recognizing, yeah, you know, I can see where Peter had the right answer, but the wrong idea. The high priest had the right hope, but the wrong understanding of who would embody that hope. And I don't I don't want to be in that group. I want to understand who the Christ is. If that's you, then I need to just close with this question. When was the last time Jesus corrected you? When was the last time you heard the Spirit of Jesus rebuke you <laughs> to help you alter your course? No, 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 no. You're going over here. I want you over here. No, no, no. You got this thing going on in your heart. We need to root that out, and we need to replace it with this thing. When was the last time you were corrected by Jesus? And I'm not just asking you, when was the last time you kind of heard that still, small voice in your quiet time, the Spirit, you know, whispering to you, hey, let's work on this. Like, I'm talking about maybe, maybe it was a friend who said, you know what, I'm, I'm concerned because I see this going on in your life. Maybe it was a spouse who said, when you do this, it's hard to see Jesus in you. That hurts. It doesn't feel good. It feels like death. It's an attack, right? And we get defensive. 
But if we understand the real nature of the kingdom of God, it means that I'm leaving the kingdom of self to enter the kingdom of God, to be a part of that world, and that God is changing me, and the Christ is conforming me to his kingdom. I'm not here to have the Christ conform to my kingdom. Uh, Paul Tripp's been nailing me <laughs> in the mornings through his book, New Morning Mercies. If you've got that devotional, I recommend it. Uh, but let me just close with a quote from him. He says, with sin still living inside of us, we are still torn between our love for the claustrophobic little kingdom of self and the grand and glorious purposes of the kingdom of God. We're still tempted to want our own way and to write our own rules. We still tend to value comfort and pleasure more than we love redemption. We are still tempted to have more excitement in the things of this world than we do with the reality that we have become the children of God and we still complain. When the sanctifying trials come our way and we still tend to credit God with faithfulness only when things in our lives seem to be working. So, when's the last time Jesus corrected you? Is there one, I want to just ask you to think about this as we go. Is there one particular area of your life, and presumably there are more than one, but is there one area in your life where you need your heart set more on things above, where we're being pulled away from the kingdom of God? We need to reset our heart and our mind on things above. And another way to look at that question is what would be the proof that you're making progress. Who knows you well enough to say, I see this growth in you. You're setting Satan behind you. You're setting Jesus in front of you. Well done. Good job. Keep it up. Jesus uh, can be hard to understand. The Christ. I get it. He's tough to nail down sometimes. He's full of surprises. It's not what we expect kind of throws us off our game. He's disruptive. But the good news is that the more we get on board with his kingdom, his surprises continue to bless us. And his love surprises the lonely. And his grace surprises the guilty. And his dignity surprises the, the downtrodden. And his suffering surprises the privileged. Especially when we feel entitled to be comfortable all the time. This gospel's full of surprises, especially the resurrection. But the good news is that all who are united to him are going to be raised with him too. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your love, your grace, your dignity, even your suffering on our behalf. And thank you for the resurrection, which promises that everything will be made new, even us, even our hearts, which continue to wrestle with this pull toward the kingdom of self, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of darkness. So please just keep Jesus in front of us. Some of us have been wrestling with this desire for many, many years as we just continue to walk this path of discipleship and repentance and faith again and again. And Lord, for any who are here and they're just kind of connecting the dots for the first time, please help us, help them, help all of us corporately to set our hearts and our minds on things above, to see Jesus as the true Christ, the one who takes our sins away and makes us new creations so that we can be part of his kingdom rather than just enlisting him to be a part of ours. 
Conform us, change us, transform us, save us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.